0: Father, thank you for your word, thank you for John, Lord, the last man standing as we've heard him called. Father, thank you for the wisdom he brings to us through your Holy Spirit today and we ask Lord that you would bless our study in Jesus name. Amen. Well, my friends again, Jim is my name, and um, I want to talk about to you about confidence or condemnation in our faith um, and I want to say that assurance of salvation is not uh, a matter of arrogance, the idea that, oh, I'm saved and I'm super cool, but a measure of biblical confidence. Um, We have been in the book of 1 John for eight weeks, and we have four more to go. And then we'll begin to look at John's last book, the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it will be, I think, a fascinating study. I want to ask, have you ever been or worked for somebody who motivated by condemnation. Did you ever work with somebody who had just had, he had not a kind word, she had not a kind word. Motivation was always derogatory and in your face. And I have to tell you about my uncle Bob. Bob is long past, about 10 years now, but my dad owned a tree company when I, and I was born and raised on the East Coast. And we, the tree crew, worked together and either the chipper, there were no chippers at that time, that's like the late 60s, I know that's 1960, and um, or we couldn't afford one. I don't know what it was. But the youngest guys on the crew hauled brush all day long. And there's not a worse job when you're doing tree work and stacking brush, hauling it across the yard, loading it on a truck, going to dump. It's monotonous, and it's just terrible. The whole goal was to get old enough to put on spikes and a belt and a saddle and climb a tree and get off the ground. But my uncle, Bob, uh, definitely made it his mission in life to motivate us with the most negative comments he could have. And I can't tell you some of them because it wouldn't be appropriate, but some of them were like, hey, slowpoke, get the lead out of your rear. Uh, Can't you carry any more than that? Come on, we got to get going. And I mean, this went on. I would say I worked haul and brush from maybe four or five years. I'm about 16 years old. And Jimbo has had enough of slowpoke, some other words, (laughs) lead in your butt, and I made the decision like this that I'm gonna tell him no more. So that day, uh, my, my dad's in one tree, my uncle's in the other. My uncle comes down first. And, and when you come out of a tree, you can hear the lines coming down. And I'm waiting at the base of the tree for him because we're gonna have a time. So he hits the ground, and I hit him, and I grab him by the shoulders and just slam him against the butt of the tree. Totally unexpected. And I'm, I'm probably his size, a little skinny, but I'm, I'm like, that's it. And he's looking at me like, well, what are you talking about? I said, my first name is Jim, and that's what it will be. And my dad, I could hear him coming out of the other tree. He wasn't done yet, but he was nervous because he's like, uh-oh, never seen the oldest son, who's pretty quiet, I know it's hard to imagine, um, <laughs> do something like that. My dad hits the ground, and I looked at my uncle, I said, Do you have any questions? And he just shook his head and said no. And I was never called slowpoke again by that guy. My name was Jim. I'm like, dude. (laughs) So there's nothing quite like being motivated from a from a condemning standpoint. So let's talk about a little bit about the guy about the Apostle John, the cycle John, Uh, the longest living of the twelve. We know that, and we have rightly heard that John is the last man standing. He outlived all of the cycles. He spent years on Patmos in exile before he was taken to Ephesus to live the final years of his life. He could be known, I think, and I heard this from the fellow who gave our instruction uh, for redemption months ago, called it the, the cycle of trauma. And I'm like, oh, what an interesting thought. And as Dr. So-and-so, I don't even know his name anymore, he and I sat and talked, it became pretty clear to me that I think... Of all of the disciples, not, none of them had an easy life, but because John lived so long, he knew what trauma was. Because he was there when John the Baptist was taken and beheaded. He was there when Peter denied and abandoned Jesus, and it's believed that John was the one who got him in near the temple court. So John might have had some, maybe just, why did I ever take Peter with me that day? He was alone at the cross with the women. John, in a positive way, stood with Peter on the, step, on the steps of the temple in Acts 2 when Peter gave such an impassioned plea that 3,000 were added to the faith at the time of Pentecost. In John's final years, he would write what we know as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Revelation. And I suppose that one of the hardest times for John would have been his final maybe 10, 15, 20 years because he had outlived all his friends. My grandfather, who missed his 100th birthday by 10 days, often told me that the hardest thing about being his age was that no one was left to talk to. Now, he had the grandkids and grandsons and all that, but the buddies he had gone to war with World War I, World War II, and and had lived in Brooklyn with, they had all died by the time he was 80. And for those 20 years, he, he, you know, talked to his family, my grandmother, but he just said, it's been the hardest time in my life. And I wonder, (coughs) excuse me, if John might have (coughs) suffered from what's known as survivor guilt. Don't know He's one of the guys I want to interview, maybe not interview, but talk to when I get to heaven, because I want to know a little bit more about this guy. The one thing I can think we could say confidently is John writes with eternity or the long view in mind as he writes these last two books in the New Testament. Beginning in chapter two of 1 John 3 and ending at the, in the middle of uh, at, at John 4 6, John has been answering the question how may we be confident and unashamed? when Christ returned, uh, he says this, he says, and I'll read some of these verses, they won't be on the screen yet, I'll write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, so we know in the church there's problems with Gnosticism, and, and, and that church, I think, had been established maybe 20, 30 years, Church of Ephesus, Paul, and those things, but there was great churning there, and 28, John says, and now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So I think John is going to answer two questions that he felt needed to be answered because of the false teachers in our text. One of them is can I know with certainty I'm walking with the Lord? Can I know with certainty I'm walking with the Lord? And then secondly, Thus, keeping his commands confirmed that I am abiding with God and he with me. And the answer to both of those is a resounding yes. This morning, we're going to look at the subjects, like I said, of confidence and condemnation in the Christian life. I believe, I think I can say this confidently, that uh, John probably struggled with some condemnation, uh, his heart accusing him unjustifiably. Because in the book of Revelation, he tells us the enemy, Lucifer, Satan, or the accuser as he's known, continually accuses us before God day and night. So as we approach this text, I want to share with you four essentials for our journey of faith. And they are, remember the condemnation we face, remember the confidence we discover, Remember the command we obey, and remember the communion we, in, we enjoy. And as we read these verses and see them on the screen here in a few minutes, you're going to see that they blend together, so they're not a clean cut, even though I've done that. One of the themes I dealt with, as I've said uh, already, was the difference between conviction and condemnation. I have to tell you, as a junior and a senior in high school, uh, they were high schools when I was that young. Uh, was involved. I was involved with the Jesus movement. Now, you can go back and read about that in Christian history now because that's the early, late 60s, early 70s. And believers from many faith backgrounds gathered together and were impacted in this movement of the Spirit uh, in different parts of our country. I was on the East Coast. There was great acceptance, mercy, and grace in these groups, Theological differences were put to the side in large ways. It was a good time of growth for me as a believer. However, in my middle school years, my spiritual experience has been, had been anything but that. That experience could best be described as condemnation on steroids. <laughs> Monthly youth rallies where only hellfire and brimstone were preached. Once a month, buddy, we going? Okay, we're gonna go? We're going to sing Amazing Grace and other songs, whatever. And then we're going to give a, an invitation that lasted 40 minutes just to make sure nobody got left out at the end. And, and the questions were, how'd you do in your faith this week? Probably not that simple. But the, all, the, the tone in those, con, in those preachings were always, are you sure? Do, do you know for certain? And after a couple months of being a junior hire, I'm like, "Uh, oh, boy, I don't know. So back down I go. By the time I graduated high school, I'm convinced that I had 12 orange Gospel of Johns on my desk because that's what they gave you every time. Here, take this home and read it. What do you do with it? It's not our job. Move on. So um, that was part of my faith journey early on. And never once do I ever remember hearing, if you're struggling with sin, That could be a good sign. Now, I don't want to say that too loud, but if you're having a hard time making choices and you're going, whoa, I shouldn't do that, well, let's talk about obedience and maybe where you're not being obedient in your faith. Your struggle means that the Spirit's working on you. Nobody ever said that from a pulpit where I was. Um, And I never heard, don't be discouraged. Your heart's being shaped. Let's talk about what God's doing in your life. As I was doing some research this week, I ran into this uh, video by Louis Giglio, it's two minutes long, and he describes the difference between condemnation and conviction very well. Let me show that to you. The Holy Spirit has three objectives
1: of conviction. He convicts in three ways. He convicts, number one, in terms of the guilt of sin. He does the convicting. So you don't wake up one day and go, you know what? I have fallen short of the glory of God and I need a savior. No, that happens because the Holy Spirit of God convicts your heart. And out of that conviction leads you to salvation. Secondly, he convicts of righteousness because Jesus now has ascended to the right hand of God. And when he ascended, he took you with him. So the Holy Spirit now breaks into our poor me story and reminds us, convicts us, convinces us, proves to us that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And thirdly, he convicts of judgment. In other words, he's the one who convinces us that the person who is gonna get all the condemnation at the end of the day is the one who started it all in the first place. He now, the prince of this world, stands condemned right now. And as you let the spirit of God work in your heart, convict in your heart, the story is gonna look different. Where condemnation was born out of guilt, conviction is born out of grace. Where condemnation led us to conceal, conviction prompts us to confess. Where the action step in condemnation was, oh, I feel bad, I feel remorseful. The step from the Holy Spirit is to repent, which means to turn around our lives completely with God. Where condemnation caused us to rededicate, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna promise, I'm gonna do more. Conviction leads us, on the other hand, to surrender. It's to say, I can't, Holy Spirit, you have to take control of my life. Take absolute, total control of me as I yield to you in this moment and every moment. And condemnation, fail every time. But conviction
0: leads to transformation and change in our lives. There is a fine line, I must say, between condemnation at times, condemnation, short definition, unjustified accusations, and conviction, justified evaluation. And at times, it's very, very close, but I think when it was been used inappropriately, it, it hurts us in a great way. I didn't learn for many years Uh, later that fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. So fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves because we can never be good enough. We can never get there while joy-based repentance makes us hate sin. Well, let's look at the text immediately preceding where we're going in in a moment. And the text will appear on the screen here. And John says this, by this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Rhetorical question, it doesn't. Okay? The link verse, I think, that's what I call it, verse 18 says this, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I heard a preacher say this. What we know has got to show. Now, there you go. You can write that one down really short. But, but what we know has got to show. Hearers have to be doers. So let's look at our first point. Remember the condemnation we face. And you're going to see these verses up on the screen. John says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. It's interesting that when we get to verse 21 in a moment, we're going to see the word condemns again. But notice in that, in that verse 20, John does not say, if our heart condemns us, but whenever our heart condemns us. John assumes that all believers face doubts. All will spend time in Doubting Castle, if you're familiar with the pilgrim's progress. Condemnation of the heart is to be expected, it is not unusual. Why? Some of us are prone to more introspection than others in self-assessment. Uh, it could be a personality trait. I think many of us would agree that we are our own worst enemies when it comes to things that are going on in our minds and our hearts and our lives. No one will be allowed to say what we say to ourselves. No one. <laughs> You'd be going, we need to go outside and talk about this. I think this can come also from the battle between the old man, as Paul talks about, and the new man. Certainly John, as I already mentioned, points this out that Satan is the accuser of the brethren who comes to unsettle us through memories and guilt of the past. I think certainly John faced his heart's condemnation. John the Baptist, why him? Jesus' death and resurrection? I mean, what an emotional time for that guy. Where were the others at the cross? I was there. Where were they? I outlived all of them. And I heard over the years how Peter had been crucified upside down, heard about Thomas and the different disciples, and how most of them, we, th- we believe, met their death as martyrs. I think John says we need to be Not surprised when our hearts condemn us. I think he might have asked the question, why am I the last man standing? I'm tired. I'm ready to go home. Uh, And I believe that's why he might have suffered from what's known today as survivor's guilt. But we need to remember what John has been telling us through the book, that love is the evidence of the spiritual life. So love is the evidence of the spiritual life and self-sacrifice is the evidence of spiritual love. I didn't learn that, uh, what I just spoke of for many years. You know, I think at times it might have been taught in places I was, uh, in churches I were in, but my self-condemnation kept drowning them out over the years. It took me several years to understand the confidence the Lord wanted me to know in my faith. John says that our hearts are not at rest or reassured as a result of condemnation. Jesus' words come to mind from Matthew 11. Come to me, all you are wearied and burdened. And maybe in that weariness and burden, there's some self-condemnation going on. Take my yoke, and you will find rest for your souls. That seems to be a discipline in my life that I've done 20 times a day at times. <laughs> and, but it's something that we need to remember. As I said, there is a fine line between condemnation and conviction. The key is to understand the confidence we discover in these verses. And what you see as you unpack these verses very quickly is that there's a little trial, like a courtroom going on. Uh, God is the judge, we are the defendants, and our hearts are the accuser. So how do we learn and understand the confidence which will reassure us our hearts? We go to the courtroom of the Lord, so to speak. Let's look at those verses in this bridge in verses 20 and 21, and that takes us to point two. Remember the confidence we discover. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence in the Lord. And verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. We'll get to that one in a moment. So as we bring those two verses together, we understand that God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything about us. John is showing us that we need to be ready to appeal to our judge as defendants in a trial that pushes our hearts to produce evidence that would convict us or determine that we are not guilty that what my heart is selling to me is a lie. We have to remember that our hearts are not infallible. We need to doubt our doubts. We need to be uncertain about some of the certainties or uncertain things that we're thinking about. We need to put boundaries on our heart. We need to know ourselves and our moods. Am I tired? Am I angry? Am I too cold? Am I too hot? Am I sad with a good reason or a bad reason? Is my heart, my feeling, my thought, my reaction valid or invalid for the circumstances or the issue we're facing? When we take the heart of condemnation to the Lord, we are able to determine whether it's a valid, uh, maybe conviction, maybe that's what it becomes, I would say, if it's valid or it's invalid. And what John's saying is most of our self, our condemnation is invalid before the Lord. This leads us then to discover the confidence that God wants us to know God is the judge, and he is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So, how do we get to that place? I would say, let the Lord help examine your condemnation. Be prepared to appeal before the judge as defendants in a trial that pushes you to go, Lord, my heart, and allow him to look at that and you to look at your heart and go, that's right or that's wrong. Uh, I think some, especially in AA, since my dad was recovering alcohol for, for years, would say, condemnation is stinking thinking. That's what they would say. That if you get stuck in this condemnation cycle, it's stinking thinking, man. You've got to stop it and break it. God's, I'm sorry, John's point he asked out to us if God knows everything, then he surely knows whenever our love for the brothers and sisters is weak. He knows the motives and resolve of our hearts, he knows exactly where we are in our spiritual condition, he sees our intermittent fe- allegiance. He sees when we're weary and, we, and we're overcome. He sees our faltering obedience, but he invites us to come and find rest for your souls as you run the race. He looks upon us as children who aren't doing well and our hearts because our heart is condemning us because we're uh, not doing well and it's causing us uncertainty. And when the heart comes as the accuser, We need to remember that God is greater than our heart. Yes, we should evaluate, for sure. We should ask for help, there's no doubt. If the verdict is your thoughts, your heart, is bringing unjustified accusation, then your heart can move to a restful position. You can learn your vulnerabilities from the situation, but you don't have to accept the lies of your heart. So when your heart comes as your accuser, remember that God is the judge, greater than your hearts, and he knows that although your strength of love is at times low and faint, and that you're tired, he knows that you love him, and your desire is to please him. You can collapse in his arms literally and find rest for your souls. He doesn't minimize our failures, but he knows that the measure of love we profess is irrefutable evidence that we belong to him. Men and women who are in Christ do not go to bed wondering or worrying if they're in Christ or not. They don't go down and go, oh, I'm going to go, oh, Lord. They have no clue. They're not in touch at all. They don't go go to bed and wonder what their hearts are condemning them for. In fact, they don't know condemnation, I don't think. I think back B.C., before Jesus, I don't think I was thinking much about condemnation. I was thinking about how to run and go and have a good time. Um, In fact, I think they have no clue. They will not have the experience that those who know Jesus, who are worthy to come to this table this morning, have. Only those in Christ wrestle with these concerns. So what's the antidote? Couple ideas for you when our heart condemns us. One is called the Warfare Prayer. It's written by a fellow named Vic Matthews. It's online. And it's been used by millions in the spiritual battle. Um, I had Vic for a professor in theology at my seminary. And that warfare prayer, I've given out hundreds of them over the years. You can just type in warfare prayer in Google Vic Matthews. It'll pop up, print it, two pages, do it back to back, fold it up, and put it in your Bible. And where you go, you can take that. And his words are solid because they're based on Scripture. I can't tell you enough how important that is. Another idea is to focus on God's mercy through word, through the word and music. And I would ask you, like David Bellman did when he preached the first time, but I don't have time. Uh, what, what's your favorite scripture? If you're going to go back in the reservoir of your mind when it comes to God's mercy, where are you going? What's your what's your go-to one? As I was thinking about that, what, the one that one of my the, and that came to mind immediately was Jesus scribbling in the sand with a woman caught in adultery. They bring this woman to Jesus. He says, let anyone of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he kneels down. At this, Scripture says, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. He said, Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. I like that, man. Because everybody wants to know what Jesus was writing in the sand, and we don't know. So we'll leave that for other times and, and, uh, and, and, and other ways. Yo, give me one second. I'm using the iPad for the first time, and I knew this would happen. I pushed it, and it moved without me doing it. (laughs) That's a bad thing, see? But I have notes here, but I'm not going to them. I'm going to persevere through this. Yes, our hearts are not infallible. I just said that. Okay, now we're coming up to this next one. (laughs) Warfare prayer, got it. Okay, page (laughs) 8. Another one of my favorites is this. Peter's reinstatement in John 21. Isn't that a great time? They're out there fishing. Jesus on the beach. Fire is going, fish, bread, and they come in, and John, the writer of this book, goes, it's the Lord, and Peter, the impetuous, out of the boat, and he's booking through the water to get to Jesus. Peter, do you love me? Now, you know in that picture that Peter's in front, and all the other disciples are behind them, behind Peter going, oh, yeah, (laughs) and Jesus is talking to all those guys. Where were you? He doesn't say that, but do you love me? The other one that brings great joy to me is the story of the prodigal son. What an unbelievable party for a guy who certainly didn't deserve it. And what about a favorite song or hymn that reminds you of God's mercy? Top of my list is Christ the sure and steady anchor. Man, Jimbo gets tearful when that, when that song pops up. i would have cried cry now. Anyway, <laughs> even King of Kings, which we're going to sing after this sermon, um, how great is your love? I mean, there's so many songs, and we need to take ourselves back into the things that we know remind us of God's mercy in times when things are not, are not easy to live. God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. He accepts us with all our fumblings. There's another slide gonna pop here in a minute, which is verse 21 and 22. John says this, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. The point there is now that we've wrestled with a condemning heart, we can come to our advocate and celebrate our communion and confidence in him. The simple, unqualified uh, promise that John gives there, whatever we ask, we receive from him, has to be balanced with, according to his will. Now, I did put this in my notes. I have to say that in John 5, verses 14 through 15, let me read that to you. Oh, don't lean too far forward. And because I have bifocals and it's not light up here. Okay, and John says this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So because it only says it once in my text, it's going to say it twice in John's text. So when he gets to that, he's going to talk to you more about those verses that God's going to give you everything you want. That's supposed to be funny. You don't have to laugh. But, but all I'm going to say is that everything we ask for has to be balanced with the thought, Lord, not your will, but mine. I mean, yeah, not my will, but yours be done. Get that one, James. Okay, write it down. Okay, so not my will, Lord, but yours, yours be done, and I'll leave that for John. Okay, that leads me to my, my third point, which is this. Remember the command we obey. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. I'm expecting to hear the Shema from the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love uh, love your neighbor as yourself. But what I'm thinking is, as I thought about this, this church was not Jewish. It was Gentile. And for John to quote that would not be, uh, I guess, very, very profitable to them. The false teachers do not love, that's clear. The reason why they don't love is because they don't believe. God's love is not in them. To believe in Jesus in this context means to believe the gospel about Jesus that he is God's son. That Jesus came to save men and women from their sins and that by believing in him you can have eternal life. The first part of this command is to believe in the name of his son Jesus. John's christology is simple and profound in the choice of how he identifies Jesus. Each one of the words he uses to describe Jesus is an objection to the false teachers' view of Jesus. When John uses the name Jesus, which means the Lord of salvation, he is reminding the people that he will save his people from their sins. When John uses the name Christ, He is reminding the church that Jesus is the anointed one, the chosen one. It's the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. And when John uses the words his son, he is affirming Jesus' humanity, that he's fully human as well as fully God, an objection, of course, to the Gnostic position. The second part is to love one another as he, Jesus, commanded us. And as John has pointed out, that is seen with actions and in truth. So I've been pondering a couple thoughts about these verses. The first thought was this, do I believe well in the Son? As I read that, wow, where, where am I? How am I? What else do I need to know? Is my faith where it needs to be? In Luke 17, the the disciples asked Jesus to strengthen their faith, and I'm thinking, in some ways, I don't think I want to ask that because I'm not sure how he'd do it (laughs) because it would probably be some big trial. I don't know that. But, I mean, you want your faith strengthened, Ellis? Let's go to work. (laughs) And uh, so that makes me a little nervous to say, Lord, strengthen my faith, but does my faith belief need to be strengthened and in what way? And the second thought is, do I, do we love well? Are there areas that Redemption Peoria can improve? I I don't know, but I think those are some thoughts that I've been chewing on. The third comes from a quote in Tim Keller's biography. And for those who know me, you know I'd get a book or two in this sermon because I always have to. So, if you haven't read, read Tim Keller's biography, you need to buy it. Money back guaranteed. So you don't like it, give it to me. I'll buy it back from you. Okay, so there's the promise. Uh, The command of John is to believe and love well as a church. I think that it's spot on, not only for our health, but the challenges we're going to face as a church ahead. And here's the quote from Keller's biography. It says this, as the enlightenment gives way to an uncertain future for the West, And I wonder, I have to ask this question. It's not in the quote. You remember Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, and which he said the subtitle was The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power. And Keller will say, you know, has the Enlightenment, and I have a question about that in a moment, run its course? So as the Enlightenment gives way to an uncertain future for the West, how do Christians present the gospel in a compelling and intelligible way? Christians can't count on shared assumptions across the culture about God, morality, sin, or eternity. In fact, the post-Christian world poses a new challenge where the idea of salvation threatens self-satisfied agnosticism, which is you can't prove God's knowable. Perhaps the biggest challenge is still underappreciated by many church leaders. I would say not John and I and the elders here, but... (laughs) But he's saying. it Anyway, underappreciated. A few hours scattered between teaching, singing, and chatting among other believers can't complete, compete with the 24-7 digital deluge. And I have to say that um, you, Tim Keller's, what's the word, poor selling book uh, came out right after he shared these quotes. And the book is called Making Sense of God. Just got it in the mail. Uh, subtitle is, Finding God in the Modern World. And I'm anxious to read. Anybody want to get together? Let's do coffee. We can read the book. Um, I want to know why it hasn't sold well. My thought is because it's going to churn us and challenge us to think in ways that we have never been challenged to because our basis for apologetics has changed over the years, uh, just over the years. One of the interesting things is biblical literacy continues to decline in our culture, and this 24-7 deluge is going to be a problem for us. So, exciting thing to talk about quickly is we're going to begin three classes in the fall based on the material by C. Jesus, and if you want more information, you can go to the website, uh, you can stop at the Connect Desk, uh, send us an email, and we can get you um, information about that. And alongside of that, we're going to begin a surge table at the end of August, which will meet weekly. The classes will see Jesus. The three classes will be eight weeks at a time with spaces during, the next, uh, during these next eight or nine months. The surge table will meet weekly to understand the story of the Bible and where, we, where our place is as witnesses and instruments of God's redemption in all of life. So that will be a great time of chatting, reading, coming together having uh, some food, and um, uh, I encourage you to check those those out. What excites me the most is we deliberately waited over the last couple of years to be in any classes and training. It wasn't, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to set this up, we're going to wait on the Lord to see where and how we can train and grow in our faith. And this is the beginning of that journey. The final point is this. Remember the communion we enjoy. John says, The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Belief leads to love, and love reflects that in obedience. Love is the evidence of the spiritual life, and self-sacrifice is the evidence of spiritual love. In John 14, as we close, Jesus said this, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus' teaching on the role of the Holy Spirit is pretty interesting in John, uh, the chapters of 15, 16, 17, and 18 about the Spirit's role in our life. And that fact will help us remember the communion we enjoy with God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when our hearts condemn us, and we despair, and we are harder on ourselves than we should be. We need to listen to the word and bathe ourselves in it, because Jesus's promises are true. Let me pray. Jesus, we're grateful for your love for us. Father, we're, Jesus, we're grateful that you ask the Father for the Spirit, another counselor who came to indwell us, to walk with us, to be with us 24 and 7. For well, I pray for my friends, Lord, that we would, Father, be great examples of your love. Father, that our words and deeds would be excellent in your sight. And Father, that people would ask about the hope that we have within us.